This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I think the people of this country have had enough of experts. The science has If you changed. count the legal votes, I easily win. It is time to get no, well, Brexit done. This, this, this candle smells like my vagina. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. What the fuck is going on? Hello, I'm Mark Steele. Welcome to my podcast where each week I ask the question... What the fuck is going on? What the fuck is going on? Now, if anyone thinks that politicians are boring, they must be referred to Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, who is a fizzing cauldron of entertainment. This week, he described how impressed he was when he met Marcus Rashford. But he hadn't met Marcus Rashford. It was rugby player Maro Itoji, and he'd got him mixed up. This is brilliant. Williamson should be appointed as the manager of the England football team. And then the commentators can announce the teams by telling us, In a surprise move, Mo Farah plays on the left as the manager thought that he was Marcus Rashford. Even more bold is his decision to play Stormzy up front as he thought he was Raheem Sterling and put Diane Abbott in goal as he thought she was Jordan Pickford. Now, to be fair... We've all made this sort of mistake. I came home the other day and I said, you'll never guess who I've just been speaking to, Barack Obama. Now, it turned out it was actually Eileen who works up the laundrette. And that explains why she looked so confused when I asked if she could have achieved more on arms controls with Vladimir Putin. But luckily, because of his limitations, Gavin Williamson has not been given a job of any importance. He's only in charge of the country's education. And this makes sense because, say, he had to sit an exam that asked, can you outline the impact of Nelson Mandela? He'd answer, yes, he was great in The Wire. So he should be given his own game show called Guess Who with Gavin Williamson, in which he can win money if he correctly identifies which black person he's talking to. And after 20 minutes Zooming with Ainsley Harriet, he'll go, I think it's Aretha Franklin, and keep us all amused. Now, he's going to be desperate to try and prove that this mix-up was nothing to do with race, and he gets white people mixed up as well. So we'll see him on TV say... Thank you for giving me the opportunity to put the record straight, Andrew Marr. But I'm Laura Kunzberg. There you go. See how easily it can happen. Now, he's not the first cabinet minister to get confused about Marcus Rashford. Last year, Matt Hancock called him Daniel Rashford. And I don't know who he was mixing him up with there, unless he meant Daniel Radcliffe. And he was thinking, well, no wonder Manchester United keep winning. They've got a player who can turn people into snakes. The black Labour MP, Dawn Butler, revealed that she once entered the members' lift in the Houses of Parliament to be told by an MP, this lift really isn't for cleaners. And maybe that's why trade deals are taking so long. After Brexit, the president of Kenya comes over to talk about export quotas and someone says to him, ah, oh, there you are. Um, could you start behind the sideboard? It's terribly mucky. But in a cabinet full of idiots, Gavin Williamson outdoes the lot of them. He must get home after every cabinet meeting and say, well, guess who was there today? 
Mira Sayal and that bloke from the Halifax ads. They had a lot to say about national insurance. But he's done well, because traditionally, if you believed that you'd had a meeting with Marcus Rashford when you'd never met Marcus Rashford, you'd be placed in a secure room with doctors coming in and out, taking notes at a safe distance, saying, Have we seen Mr Rashford again this morning? Yes, that's nice. And did he tell you how to score lots of goals? Jolly good. Now, open wide. Let's make sure we've swallowed all our tablets. Marcus Rashford wouldn't want you to not swallow your tablets, would he? But like a true entertainer, Gavin Williamson had more cracking lines. He said the portrait of the Queen in his office wasn't flattering. And then he hurriedly corrected himself, saying, obviously, Every picture of the Queen is stunning. He should be an art critic so he could write, This portrait of Her Majesty is stunning. Till it's pointed out it's actually a photo of Taylor Swift. And to make things even more confusing for Gavin, the Lord Lieutenant for London revealed this week that Her Majesty the Queen supports Black Lives Matter. This is marvellous news and we can look forward to the Queen starting her Christmas speech by taking the knee. And then someone could present Gavin Williamson with a portrait of the Queen pulling down a statue of slave trader Edward Colston. And he'll say, it's stunning. But why is she pulling down a statue of Harry Kane? Now, as we are trying to find out what the fuck is going on, there are all sorts of people around the world that I could ask that would illuminate me on this matter. None of them would be as perfect for answering this question as Victoria Corran. Hello. Hello. You're you're making the mistake that people often do of thinking I know anything at all about anything. I can read out what's written in front of me. Well... I think in many ways you have inspired this very podcast because never have so many people said the name of this podcast as when they're watching your wonderful television (laughs) programme, Only Connect. Yeah, I can believe that's true. And yet it is marvellously captivating. Appointment television for me. And at no point, I must have watched 100 episodes, have I ever known what the fuck is going on? Well, the thing is, the way you have to approach I know you're a fan of kind of weird Olympic sports. I know you'll watch the curling, whatever it is they do. Oh, I love the curling, yeah. Yeah. So, but you have to watch it in that spirit. I mean, sometimes the first rounds, the opening heats, you can join in and give some answers. But as we move later into the competition, you just got to watch other people doing what they're good at and kind of marvel at the skills. It's not really about understanding it. Yes, I remember writing, and I'd forgotten that I'd ever put this, but you reminded me that I once put the answers are usually things like, they are, of course, all anagrams of Swedish slang word for pomegranate and uh, and stuff like that. Even after you've said the answer, if you then repeated exactly the same question, I still wouldn't get it. (laughs) Why so? I watch it sometimes. I mean, I can never answer the questions. And I was there when we recorded it. You can't answer the questions when you're watching it. No. I mean, I sometimes can. I sometimes can. And usually there's a stage when the question packs are ready and they send them to me and I sort of play along with it. And to test that we're at the right sort of level, it should be that I can answer a few in the early games and then I stop being able to answer them and by the final, I don't understand the questions. But having been through the process and I've I've sat, I've had it all because I'm quite thorough with my research. Um, you know, I never want to just be walking in and reading something out and I say it's all wrong, uh, or, or you know, doing a Paxman as they call it, <laughs> and then I can watch it on television six weeks later. No idea. Brilliant. 
I did get one right about three weeks ago, and it was Derry, Truro, Norwich. And I thought, oh, they're all cities, and that's the westerly one, southerly one. I was sat on this very city screaming, Inverness! Inverness! <laughs> I was so disappointed that there was no one filming it, you know, because I thought, oh, I could have made that up. And when you said Inverness... I think that was the happiest moment of my life. Well, congratulations. I think second is Palace getting promoted and third and fourth with the birth of me kids. I won't say which one in which order they're joint third. <laughs> you did very well to get that right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Victoria, for saying <laughs> I did really well. <laughs> now, are you able to enlighten us to this particular subject? Mm -hmm. This week... The Lord Lieutenant of London, or something, or someone with an equally uh, um, daft name, declared that the Queen, Her Majesty, is a supporter of Black Lives Matter. This is a big question. What do you think about this? You know posh people. <laughs> yes. Um, the point of the Queen, I think, is that we can assume her views about anything. She, she never expresses them. So broadly... If you're a fan of the Queen, and I am, you assume she thinks the things you think. And you're free to do that. Oh, OK. For me, the Queen is pro-Black Lives Matter, anti-battery farming, and thinks the guy in line of duty has a dodgy Cockney accent. Because onto this space Her Majesty leaves, where other people will put opinions, we can project right. what we would like her to think. Oh, so... I, so... I mean, I very much supported the Black Lives. I supported the, the pulling down the statue process. So then I I can think, oh, I bet the Queen's watching that on the telly going, go on, throw him in the fucking river. Slave trading bastard, get in the fucking Bristol Channel. Well, you see, I, you see, I joke about it, about her thinking that about Line of Duty. But in my heart, because I'm a fan of the Queen and I rather love the Queen, that is what I genuinely think. It might seem ridiculous. In my heart, I believe that the Queen is, for example a good and kind and caring person, how can she not be a Black Lives Matter supporter? She must be. She meets millions of people. She can't want sort of injustice and cruelty and fit. She, I feel that she must be, for all we know. I'm going to go out on a limb here, yeah. Vicky. I don't think the Queen does agree with you on very much. I don't know her personally. Right. I mean, for example, she probably does defend privilege just a little tiny bit, because she's head of state in about 80% of the world on account of the fact that she was born. Yes, that's your assumption because you're a Republican. <laughs> you don't know that's true. The Queen might not think anything. She has woken up to the sound of a bagpiper every day of her life because <laughs> Queen Victoria did. She might not think anything at all. Maybe she doesn't give a shit about anything. Maybe she's just sipping her Dubonnet, looking at the flowers, very happy. Her genius is that you don't know what she thinks. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not saying she would agree with me about everything, of course. To me, the confusing thing about Black Lives Matter as a campaign is that for many of us, it's uncontroversial. So it's odd that it's controversial to some. It is an open and shut, straightforward kind of, you know. Yes. And, and so there's a, there's a problem of communication. I remember thinking during the first lockdowns, this is an opportunity for the libertarian right to find common ground with Black Lives Matter. They'll be able to understand it because as those people said, and I have some sympathy with this too, by the way, as they said, 
I'm not having someone tell me how far I can go from my house, whether I can see my mum at Christmas, whether I can visit someone in a home. Yes. Those people had that moment of understanding what powerlessness feels like, what it feels like when authoritarians tell you what you can and can't do. And you're thinking, what is this? Why can't I walk down my own street, see my own family? And people fought and kicked against it because they understood the sudden terror of not having the control over your own life. So there was a moment where they could understand, oh, maybe that's what it's like if you're maybe an athlete driving with your husband and baby somewhere to do something sort of noble, and the police stop you and get you out and handcuff you in front of the baby, and your whole soul is screaming, why don't I have any power here? And it was a chance for them to come together. I don't don't think that's really how how it panned out. No, but it's a wonderfully romantic view, though, that I can definitely identify with. Yeah. Now, the Taliban, if we are to be controversial, are not as egalitarian as they might be, particularly when it comes to women. There's been quite a lot of sort of people on social media, Twitter, that sort of thing, who sort of, and I think, oh, this is how you've come to regard the world and how you object to things. And it's quite sweet in a way, which is like, usually you go, oh, someone said something rude on the television or sexist on the television. Let's get them trending and make them have to apologise. And that might work when it's someone talking to Eamon Holmes or something. But they're doing that for the Taliban. And I said, no, it's not going to work for them. My son said the other day, look at this. Someone had sent him a thing going, if you think we're not doing enough to oppose the Taliban, here is a list of things you can do. And the first one was, write to your MP. <laughs> no, the Taliban, oh, they really go, oh, fucking hell, look. Croydon North MPs had 17 letters. And as my lad put, Croydon Council sent us a message saying there's a six-month waiting list for getting a recycling bin. So the chances of them putting up any meaningful armed resistance to the Taliban. But do you know what I mean? This sort of There is a sense, I think, amongst some people that this is how you express your opposition to something. Is by, oh, I don't, and I think it's the online petition. You must get a lot of these things. Please sign this online petition. And I sometimes think, oh, yes, of course, but... There's a bit of me thinks, don't think this is doing anything. I don't. I hate to be cynical. I think anything is better than nothing. I don't like the online petition. I would like it that it's someone going to the house with a clipboard and you have to write it in pen. Because the, the online petition is a bit like sort of collecting things now. now you know, it used to be I collected uh, when I was younger, because this is how cool I am, World War I crested China. <laughs> So little China kind of biplanes and tanks. Oh, right. Yes, right. yes. Oh, so it's an ill wind because I know there was problems with the Somme and everything, but I've got a lovely porcelain jug with a little print of the Archduke Ferdinand on it. There are some lovely pieces. But but the fun went out of it because now you just type it into the internet and it's just all there. Like, who cares? The joy was finding one of them in a market or something. And it's just all there. It's a bit like that with petitions. Mm-hmm. You know, we had this recently when they were going to close the local laundrette because they said, who needs a laundrette now? And actually, the number of physical signatures they got at the counter in the butchers and the this and the that, it was very moving. Yes. That they were real people. They put their real addresses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, let me just throw in, by the way. So they didn't close it. And recently, there was a fire at the laundrette. And it closed, and it's been closed for several months. I'll just leave that with you. Anyway, (laughs) it really meant something. If you just have to press the thing and click on it on the online petition, I'm not sure. You know, I'd like to see a bit more effort. 
put in. All right, I agree. I agree. And just then to finish up with this, one of the elements that seems to have got people more wound up than anything else, and certainly I'm of that uh, ilk, the Taliban have banned women from playing cricket, which of course they're going to do. They're the Taliban. This seems to be a lot of people, that's just too much. The executions is one thing, but you can't ban women from playing cricket. And I'm very much sort of of that as well. But I love the fact that people are so astonished that they've done that. Do you think we've underestimated the sort of sexist element of the Taliban? (laughs) Do you know, there is something about cricket. I'm not a fan myself, but I was actually moved to tears by some pictures the other day about some of the Afghan refugees in Newport Pagnell in Buckinghamshire. And the locals have put on a cricket match. They'd been in quarantine for a while and they're all in this slightly kind of grim sort of hostel there and various people all around the country, people are doing this, which I think is wonderful. And given that there's no point in anything and we're all doomed and everything's terrible, this raises the spirits. People everywhere are trying to take things to Afghan refugees if they have them and toys and this and that. And this is what they've done in Newport Pagnell. They had a cricket match and it was so meaningful. Rather than dropping off a box of clothes, the immediate common language of yeah. the children of Buckinghamshire and the children of Afghanistan with the horrors they'd experienced playing cricket together. It was huge and powerful and that wasn't meaningless. And um, the idea of people coalescing around something like cricket that they can picture and understand, I think it's a lot easier to understand that. That is magnificent. And, of course, it does It does time with 9-11, or the aftermath of 9-11 and when the Americans were... That is the origins of Afghan cricket because the refugee camps in Pakistan were where the Afghans learnt cricket and within 20 years they'd achieved international status. So it has sort of come full circle. So I, absolutely agree. I would also be moved to tears by that, partly because it would be the only cricket I could see because the fucking Indians have bloody pissed off home rather than play their last game. That's something that involves knowing something about cricket, isn't it, for me to divide? <laughs> yeah. But it is a symbol because the cricket match with women playing in it is a symbol of everything good and decent and that the commonality that we're all striving for. That is a marvellous place to end, Afghan women cricket. That's the future. Thank you very much for explaining to us what the fuck is going on, not least with her own television programme, Victoria Corran. Mitchell. Victoria Corran Mitchell. There you go. What the fuck's going on with that name? <laughs> This week, it was announced that 12-year-olds will have the final say as to whether they have the vaccine or not, and parents can't order a jab if the child doesn't want it. Now, I'm not really an expert on vaccines, but George Galloway is. Unfortunately, George has pulled his hamstring this week, so he can't be with us. But he has sent, in his place to help shed light on this issue, deceased cricketer Fred Truman. Well, I mean... Kids these days have been 12 years old. I just give up, I really do. I mean, I mean, in my day, when you were 12, you you did what you were told. I mean, if your mother said, we have sold you to the circus, then off you went. I mean, you trapezed away until you were 37. I mean, I still haven't seen my brother. Last I heard, he was a clown in Lithuania. And uh, in those days, we had proper vaccinations, not these little needles they use nowadays. I mean, we had to stand in a field and Fatima Whitbread would dip a javelin into a bucket of vaccine and hurl it at us from 60 yards. And uh, if we flinched, Jeff Capes would throw a shot put at us. But you can say what you like. I've, I've never had a day off sick with Scrivener's palsy in my life. And I mean, and, uh, don't talk to me about side effects. I mean, Chalky Simpson was sliced clean in half. 
By his javelin, he still went off that afternoon and took three for 42 against Gloucester. And his bottom half went to Hove and scored 19 not out uh, for the second 11 against Sussex. Ah, Last Saturday, 828 migrants crossed the English Channel to come to Britain. 828. This is a crisis. We're short of 70,000 lorry drivers. So even if every one of them had an HGV licence, we'd still be 69,172 lorry drivers short. And it's not just lorry drivers we need. According to the Financial Times... The CBI has warned Britain faces a shortage of forklift drivers, fruit and flower pickers, butchers, warehouse workers, cleaners, housekeepers, chefs, scaffolders, carpenters, welders, electricians and factory workers. Now, this is exactly what the Leave campaign said would happen. Nigel Farage often said during the referendum campaign... We're absolutely sick in this country of having enough people to do our welding. People would call phone-in shows and say, The sooner we leave Europe, the better, right? Because I am sick of foreigners coming here with their masks and torches and permits to weld and getting things what are apart and forcing them to be together by welding them. It's disgusting! Boris Johnson used to go on the telly and say, Let's exit the EU and get back to what made Britain great, which is leaving forklift trucks to go rusty. And then there was the legitimate complaints of British builders who said, the thing is with the poles, right, is they're undermining us all. Because what they do is they'll say to people, we'll come round on a Wednesday, and then they come round on a Wednesday. I mean, we can't compete with that. In May 2016, a Daily Express headline boasted, Three in four EU workers will be kicked out in Brexit. Now, they told us this would be a good thing, and it is. Because now, at last, wherever there's a field of strawberries, instead of letting Romanians muck us about by carefully picking them and putting them in boxes, the fruit can go rotten. So British maggots have somewhere to live at last! Because for too long, unskilled immigrants have been coming over here using up our resources. For example, 18.4% of staff in care homes are immigrants, which is much higher than the percentage of people who live in care homes and who depend on the staff. So our elderly are going to all that effort to create puddles of wee and sick, and these foreigners are coming over here, sponging it all up and walking off with it. So it's common sense to put a stop to it, just as if... There were three people in your house and one of them did all the cooking and the cleaning and the washing up. The most practical thing to do would be to kick them out for being a parasite. Nurses are even worse. They work in hospitals, which means they're more likely to get coronavirus. And then when they catch it, we have to pay for them out of taxpayers' money to get other foreign nurses to look after them. They probably come over here on purpose so that they can catch the virus knowing that they can enjoy the luxury of our sheets. Now, Priti Patel did explain to people who were worried about the effects of Brexit that there wouldn't be a shortage of labour because... There are 8 million inactive people in Britain who can do this work. The largest section of this number is the retired. 
So that should have worked out perfectly. The elderly in care homes could become economically active by working in care homes. So they all mop up each other's mess, saving money for the care home sector by forgetting which one's the carer and which one's the resident so they don't even have to be paid. Or if someone is economically inactive because they've had a triple heart bypass in Sunderland, they're the obvious person to pick apples all day in Hereford. Better that than someone who's healthy and foreign. But somehow this doesn't seem to have worked out. So soon the government will announce we had great success with our get back to wherever it was you were born scheme. And now we're introducing a new scheme called bring a pole to work day. So maybe Pretty Patel can go to the beach at Calais with Nigel Farage and they can take turns bellowing through his megaphone. Please get in a boat and come to Britain. We've run out of welders and chefs. Have you got any sisters? Cousins? Anyone who can put up a scaffold? Or pick an apple? Can you put them on a dinghy, please? Quick. Oh, what the fuck is going on? This week was the 20th anniversary of 9-11, a, a tragedy that affected us all. And in particular, this woman that I heard speaking in a cafe earlier this week. Well, I heard Richard Madeley on Good Morning Britain talking about the terrible human consequences, and I can certainly identify with that, because I vividly remember the awful moment when I heard the news that our flight to Edinburgh had been cancelled, and I just broke down. I, 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 I broke down because I was supposed to be going with Veraminta and some of the other girls from uni for a spa weekend. I remember my exact words. I turned to her and, and I said, this is such a tragedy. So many lives have been ruined. I've been planning this for six months and now I'm going to lose my deposit on Troon Castle. But it does make you think. Because when I met Colin, he told me that only five months before 9-11, he'd been to Pisa. And they've got a tower, so it could have been him. And their one's halfway over already. So you would have thought Bin Laden would have targeted that because it only would have taken a suicide hang glider. And then Colin and I would never have met and Pringles would have had a different head of marketing for the whole of the Rygate area. So I suppose we should count ourselves lucky. I told that story to an American woman I met at Nectarine's cello recital and she just glared at me and said my husband was a firefighter in Manhattan that day and I said, well, I'm sorry if my story's not as interesting as yours. But that's the trouble with some people. It's just me, me, me. Excuse me, were these bees that made their manuka honey, were they free range? What the fuck is One of the joys of doing this podcast is that people send little messages on Twitter, partly because I ask people to, I suppose. And so some of the messages that I've had over the last week, Bobby Bloomfield very kindly said, loving the podcast, I think the sound was better too. You are very astute, Mr. Bobby Bloomfield or Mrs. Bobby Bloomfield, because last week, for the first time since starting the podcast, we attached a thing called a sound shield to the back of the microphone. Now, if I was American, I'd be saying, hey, it's just so different. I couldn't hear a single thing on this podcast before, but now it's so clear. I just want to have a sound shield around my mouth all day long. It's incredible. But it is quite remarkable. And to be fair, I think it honestly does make a difference to a podcast that you can hear it as opposed to to when you couldn't hear it. So thank you very much, Bobby, for recognising that. Sheila Hooper. This is one of the more serious issues that we've ever had to deal with. Sheila says, I love your podcast, but the 133 doesn't go to Clapham Common. Uh, On some issue or other, I mentioned a 133 going to Clapham Common, and I got that wrong. And it's really, really upset me. I, 
I thought it did. It definitely goes down Stretham Hill. I did contact Sheila and she says she thinks it's the 155. This is obviously really, really quite serious news and I will be keeping you in touch with developments as they come in. Eric Heath asks, what the fuck is going on with the fifth test match? Uh, If you ask me seriously what the fuck is going on, I don't think it was COVID. There we are, I've said it. Go on, India, sue me. And I'm very pleased with this. Uh, Mr. Omid Jalili, the very man himself, splendid, splendid chap that he is, says about the George Galloway part of last week's podcast, great impression, Mark, but not finishing with would you like me to be the cat will go down as an opportunity missed. Thank you very much, Omid. The only thing is, it's not an impression. It's George. George comes in. But thank you very, very much. Do send in as many messages as you can to at Mr. Mark Steele or you can direct message me or something and I will try and read them, I promise. Also, I have to say that there are a number of places where you can pay and see me at a theatre of some sort. I'm up in Wakefield on the 21st of September. I'm trying out some little bits and pieces at the Carolina Brunswick, which is a marvellous little room above a heavy metal pub in Brighton gloriously scuzzy exactly what a room should be when it's above a heavy metal pub and uh there we are there we are you can come and see me at any of those places and um yeah that'll do me what the fuck is going on now this week i have been extraordinarily excited as many other people have been by the wonderful emma redicanu uh, a qualifier from Kent, a qualifier player who was completely unknown as a tennis player six months ago, and she's got to the US Open final, and I've watched nearly all of her matches, and they've all been amazing. And it did make me think, because she's 18 years old from Kent, completely unknown, and suddenly achieved all of this. And I can identify with her, because I was an 18-year-old completely unknown from Kent, and then one day I got to the third level of the Space Invaders machine in the only pub in Swanley, and I was the first person in the pub to do it. So I can certainly identify with all the sort of pressures that she's under, but I stayed focused. I had a very strong team around me that made me realise what was important, and I certainly hope she learns from that. But what the fuck is going on that this can happen in the first place? Now, luckily, I have bred someone who is young and can tell us about the pressures of youth. Elliot Steele. Now, what would I talk about then? You remember being 18, not that long ago for you. Is this going to affect people? Because now people are going to be looking at 18-year-old kids and that and going, why can't you be like that? Yeah, I mean, Mbappe fucked it for everyone, didn't he? when he won the World Cup. Oh, yeah. How old was he when that happened? I think he was like 18, 19, yeah. Can you remember what what was your sort of uh, outlook at 18? I, I came second in So You Think You Were Funny. Oh, yeah. At 18? Yeah. I was genuinely furious. I had to go up onto the thing and uh, get congratulated. And I had to like, hide the fact that I was absolutely furious. I got beat by someone with a guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who has since quit comedy. Oh, right, OK. So do you think it should be retrospectively awarded to you? Like, Yeah, I think absolutely. Like cyclists who were caught cheating with drugs. His title should be stripped from him. Or like when you find out that someone's a paedophile or something and they have to get removed from the thing. Like, you know, it should go to me. <laughs> Does that happen? I don't know. Like, does, have Gary Glitter's chart positions all been, like, removed? No, I mean, he's a, he, he did earn them, retrospective of what he was up to, weren't he? 
you got to hand it to him. He, he knew how to make a shot. That wasn't his issue, was it? <laughs> I don't think you're even allowed to say that now. I don't think, you know, I think retrospectively, everything goes. I don't think there ever was those songs. The point is here, Emma Adekanu, should we be celebrating this? She's 18. She's not living a normal sort of 18-year-old life, is she? Is it? In fact, we're all sort of enjoying it. But is a, when you see a gymnast who's taken at the age of four and made to sort of do things that make themselves all bendy and that, you know, is this a bad thing? Um, depends how much you want to win gold at the Olympics. It's not the Olympics. The Olympics. No, but I mean, I mean, no, but oh, for right. the gymnasts, oh, going right. on what you were saying, Mr. Saki... <laughs> Sorry okay. for logging in and trying. It, it's like so. It's like with the gymnast thing because we were discussing it one time where people were like, "Oh, all these pressures and these things that they're put under and the way they're treated and this is it's really unethical." Yes, but that is the sacrifice if you want to be the Olympic gold medalist gymnast up against Russia and China. Because this is the thing, right? We're going to lose to China in the next war, like, and they just want it more, don't they? Like, you got to say fair play to them. Like, have you seen, like, footage of Chinese kids, like, just going to class, goose-stepping on their way from maths to, like, science? And right. Like, at our schools, like, we're giving fat kids participation trophies and stuff. So that's why someone, like, when Emma Raducanu comes along, it's clearly, like, what will happen in about... I, I guarantee it, in about, like, six years' time, there'll be a Netflix documentary about her, about how awful she was treated in training camps, the oh. pressure she was under, and how bad it was. But it's like... Well, yeah, that's what it takes to be a top-level athlete. It's an incredibly lonely, dull life where you just sacrifice everything for millions of pounds. There shouldn't be a documentary about her. There should be documentaries about people who did all the same sacrifices, never made it. Yeah, do you think that the uh, school where she went in Bromley, do you think they're going to go, right, now I think we should go round to all of the other children in Bromley and give them a US Open final medal as well. <laughs> yeah. Because even though they didn't go to New York and beat Benchich or Sakari or Fernandez, they did very, very well. And they all get a balloon and a, a signed thing from John McEnroe. Probably, but that's the way we're, we're heading in this country is we are a little bit... We are a little bit like give everyone a go, aren't we? Yeah, uh, there's a bit of that. But you did something when you're... I'm trying to think what what age you were. I think you were about 16. Do you remember when all your mates came round and stayed here? Oh, we were drinking the whiskey. Yeah, and I didn't know for years because I counted... I was 14. 14? I was 14. I spewed as well and you never noticed. It was about a week after I'd had a birthday and quite a lot of people had got me whiskey because people know that I'm a big fan of malt whiskey. And I remember thinking, oh, count the whiskey because the little bastards will probably try and drink that. And then afterwards I thought... Oh, no, it was all there, but I must have miscounted. I thought I had six bottles. and um, I did steal one of them one time. I take, took him to a party, actually. Like a really Another one? Story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just never notice. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe my luck. Like a bottle of, like, 40 quid whiskey. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no yeah, one drank I'm... it either. <laughs> no one wanted it. So it was just left there? <laughs> For fuck's sake. <laughs> well, thank you very much for explaining to us about Emma Raducanu. Yeah, you're welcome. Elliot Steele. What the fuck is going on? Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you've liked it, please subscribe, rate it, and if you can be bothered, write a review. And if you 
can't be bothered, then it's even more important to write a review because you'll not only add a review, but you'll also feel so much better about yourself for having done something constructive. If there is anything at all that you think I should be finding out what the fuck is going on with it, then please send me a message on Twitter, at Mr. Mark Steele, and we will do our complete best to look at all the messages that you send. What the fuck is going on was hosted by me, Mark Steele, with my guests, Victoria Corrin Mitchell and Elliot Steele. Voices by Sarah Alexander and Pete Sinclair. It was written by Mark Steele, James Serafinowicz and Pete Sinclair. Music by Willie Dowling. It was produced and edited by Scott and Matt and Podmonkey. What the fuck is going on is a co-production between Podmonkey and Consec Industries.